Thank you everyone for being here. Welcome to the 2023 Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. My name is Danae Hirsch. I am a first year MBA at MIT Sloan. And it's my pleasure to welcome you all to this panel, Data for Good, What Can Sports Learn from Other Industries? We have some incredible panelists today, uh, starting with Sanjeev Verma, who is the founder and chairman at Prevail, Corbin Petro, Corbin, uh, co-founder and CEO at Eleanor Health, Seth Moulton, U.S. Representative for Massachusetts 6th Congressional District, and Corey Thomas, CEO and Chair at Rapid7. Moderating this panel is Andrea Jones-Roy, who is from the NYU Center for Data Science. This panel is going to run for 45 minutes, and there'll be 10 minutes left at the end for questions. If you do have any questions, please use Twitter and the hashtag WhatSportsCanLearn, and our moderator will uh, take it from there. Okay. All right. Thank you, so Thank you. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, Danae. Thank you to our panelists. Uh, my name is Andrea. I'm so excited to be here. Uh, I think we're all here under the optimistic view that sports has things to learn from other fields. So uh, that is the premise uh, of today and thinking about how we can use data for good and think about data ethics, data ownership, privacy, and all those good things. So I think we have every industry besides sports represented here, right? So we've got health, government, cybersecurity, tech. Uh, so I think that covers all of it. I wanted to start with each of you and ask about risk management. So we've got some folks here from cybersecurity, government, health, places where data and risk and cybersecurity are all big questions. How do you, I'm gonna start with you, Corey, how do you think about risk management when it comes to using data? Well, I mean, the first thing to know is that we actually have the capacity to manage risk, I would say, effectively. Okay. And when I say effectively, that does not mean nothing bad happens. You know, I'll use like a city. Okay. You know, great cities have crime. Um, they just don't have so much of it where it becomes overwhelming, where there's a feeling of, of not safety. And so in cybersecurity, we have the ability to actually manage risk and manage it well. But what I would say is that very few have the resources, the skills, and the capability to do that. So you see a big divergence between the haves and the have-nots. Mm. And so it's really is how do we actually get it where most organizations, most nonprofits, um, most sports can actually have the practices, the resources, the talent to have a well-run risk management and governance program. And that's what we see just lots of divergence today in the world around us. And to what do you attribute that divergence? Uh, a couple of things is, you know, one, you actually find things that are heavily regulated and been doing it for like 20 plus years, like, you know, banks and investment banks. Mm. They have a much more mature cybersecurity ecosystem and risk management ecosystem. Um, organizations where it has not had to be a focus or that don't have the budget and the resources have a less mature cybersecurity ecosystem. Uh, and therefore, their risk is sort of like more susceptible. And so in a field like different, different areas of sports where people probably have different levels of interest in cybersecurity, I'm not going to assume our levels here, do you think that there's a need for more awareness of cybersecurity risk when we think about things like athlete data? Or is it, is, from your senses, are we kind of paying enough attention to this? Well, I think, uh, so no, I would just say that at least in my interaction, we have several sports teams, customers, it's sports industry in general is in the earlier stages mm. of actually developing the domain and the mastery around um, around cybersecurity and risk management in general. Um, but I think there's a couple of things that are a little bit trickier when it comes to it. So one is just how do you actually manage your cyber profile? How do you do the fundamentals and the basics? The other thing is data is incredibly tricky. I think we'll get this just a little bit later on, mm. is that most people think about on the whole thesis of this is that data is for good. Um, most people don't start off thinking about like, 
what does it mean to actually use data in ways that actually discourage trust? Mm -hmm. um, how is my data susceptible? And I think as we use data more, we have to be constantly asking <coughs> those questions about like, all right, but what are the negative externalities that can happen around data? Let's talk about regulations. Let's talk about negative externalities. These are all things that uh, US representatives uh, are, are thinking about, I imagine. How do you think about risk management, uh, data management, and things like that in your role? Well, one of my jobs is sitting on the, the House Armed Services Committee. And uh, I sit on the subcommittee in charge of uh, strategic nuclear forces and space forces. So like everything in space, every, all the nuclear missiles that we have, we're in charge of that. This is some of the most highly classified stuff that we do, right? And it's very sophisticated, very sci-fi kind of things. And of course, the big risk is that one of our adversaries discovers uh, what we're all about. But on the flip side, 9-11 was not detected in, in part because we didn't share information. Mm. So there's this real tension between keeping things super secret and super classified and actually sharing information. So when you sit in the Pentagon and you write an email to someone, there's this toggle that you can select that basically says uh, whether this is a no foreign, so no foreigner will ever, ever see this email or not, right? So imagine if when you're writing an email, you get to select a toggle that says people can read this email in the future or people can't. What do you think you're going to select, right? The default is almost always, eh, better not to have people read this email. But that actually creates a real problem with overclassification of mm. information. So we're not able to share things effectively as a government. We don't understand as much about what other parts of the government are doing. And that actually comes back mm. to hurt our national security. So it's an example of how we real have this real tension in the government between keeping things very private and very secret and actually having a, a more open architecture that might enable us to not only identify threats better, but also innovate more quickly. Well, it kind of reminds me of what, Corey, you said at the beginning, which is, look, all cities have some crime. It's are we managing it in a thoughtful way as opposed to zero crime? Whereas when you think of risk management, cybersecurity, you think maximum security, zero risk. But that comes with the, some trade-offs, right, which is that we actually aren't exchanging information. That's right. Do you have a set of, I'm sure this doesn't exist, but a set of guidelines that you all use to, to navigate this? I mean, I imagine who you're sharing that information with and over what channels is part of that consideration, or is it... No, it's, it's actually, it's really challenging. So, um, I mean, I'll give you a very concrete example that we're dealing with right now, uh, which is that for a long time, um, there have been two, you know, sort of superpowers in the world with opposing uh, nuclear forces, and we have real norms for what we do and what we don't do, mm -hmm. right? For example, you know, we don't, um, we don't take out uh, satellites that can look at our, what we're doing from the Russians because we know that that might be a precursor to a nuclear attack. So we have an agreement, informal agreement almost, that we just don't do that. Well, all of a sudden now China is rapidly expanding their nuclear forces and they don't necessarily agree uh, with all this stuff. So we're trying to figure out how can we declassify some of the bad things that they're doing to discourage them from doing it. Hmm. In the same way that the administration just declassified the fact that China is looking at giving weapons to Putin to support his ridiculous war in Ukraine. So by declassifying that, we're actually discouraging the Chinese from doing that. But it's much more complicated when you have highly classified things like, I mean, we're not just talking about giving artillery shells to Ukraine, we're talking about very sophisticated things that, that nukes and satellites do. That's a real challenge. Mm -hmm. and, and we're having meetings about this now to figure out how we can. The goal is really to lower classification, not to increase it. Right.
which feels very counterintuitive to, to totally those of us who think yeah. about, again, higher classification is, is somehow better. Uh, so healthcare data, I feel like that's an area that I, at least as a patient of healthcare, would think, oh gosh, maximum classification, maximum security. How do you wrestle with this, this trade-off that we've been discussing in, in when it comes to health data? Well, it's, it's similar to, to what Seth was saying in that it's, it's a highly regulated industry. Mm. So we have a ton of compliance regulations about how we can use data, how we can transfer data. Um, and in my space, so I, I run a company in the addiction and mental health space, there's an even higher level. Mm. So in healthcare generally, there's something called HIPAA. For addiction and mental health data, there's something called 42 CFR Part 2, which no one needs to know that. Catchy um, name, I like yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. It, it rolls off the tongue. Um, and so it's, it controls that data even tighter. So here, here's an example of um, a negative consequence of that. If I'm a, if I'm a patient at, at my clinic, for example, I'm a pregnant woman, um, have, have addiction, I'm getting treatment for that. I go to my OBGYN within the same healthcare ecosystem. That OBGYN doesn't see that I'm in treatment mm. for, for a substance use disorder and for addiction. Well, that could lead to significantly substandard and even dangerous care mm. for that patient. But we've put in regulations to make it so that we're so tight in controlling the data that it actually hurts the patient and the patient experience. That's a negative consequence. On a positive experience, that patient who went to the OBGYN, because the OBGYN didn't know that, that it was a patient seeking treatment for addiction, wasn't stigmatized against, wasn't judged, wasn't treated differently mm -hmm. because of that very stigmatizing condition. So like with defense, there, it's, it's these counterbalances of how do we use data for good when there's so much opportunity for abuse and for unintended consequences. And one of the questions that we're gonna get to in, in a little bit is who, who decides how that data is used, right? So, so maybe the patient can say, I'm gonna share this data with these practitioners, uh, but maybe there's cases where you'd want the, you know, the powers that be in the healthcare system to say, no, we need to share this information. Yeah, so well, like the toggle on the email. Right. Guess, guess what people do when they're asked if they wanna share their, their information, um, even, even if, those opportunities for good, and we, we're doing so much in healthcare around personalized medicine and mm -hmm. the ability to predict who's at risk and who's not, but there's so much fear and, and mistrust, really, right. same as in government and defense, all, all the data that's used there. And so we try to put protections in place, often by people who don't understand all of the trade-offs. Right. And I'm trying to think about you know, connecting this back to sports. And so we've got data about athletes, we've got data about fans, we've got data about people who are uh, uh, running the various industries, and, and at what point do I get to say if I attend a game that you can use my likeness or not uh, to test a security risk or something like that. Sanjeev, we were talking just before uh, we began about cybersecurity, and you have some interesting ideas that, that were perhaps, mm, we have some, some misunderstandings about the way that we think about cybersecurity, and especially in light of the trade-offs we've been discussing here. Uh, what are your thoughts there? Well, first and foremost, I think the points that have been made about the tension between cybersecurity and the collection and use of data mm -hmm. are very real. I think Corey's points about you know uh, a broad understanding of what constitutes cybersecurity is very different depending on the level of maturity of an organization. But I wanted to kind of step back over here and first try to segment this problem by identifying two types of data for the sake of this discussion. So one is a type of data that is a communication that's happening between individuals, files are going back and forth, it's a private communication, and the level of security that ought to be applied to that um, 
and the protection of that depends on what would happen if that data was lost. Mm. And so you ought to put a high level of cybersecurity and protections to it. And the second class of data is one that ostensibly ought to be shared more, et cetera. There are consequences to the loss of it, but not quite as catastrophic. And therefore, there is a different level of protection. And regulatory frameworks try to come around and build guardrails and frameworks to basically say who can access it, who can, what are best practices, and so forth. So I, what I wanted to start by saying is that the protection of data, and I'm just talking about the first category, is an interesting one where it's widely misperceived as, oh, there's defense data, therefore it ought to be at the highest level of protection, and it ought to be, certainly. But it turns out that cybersecurity is widely misperceived uh, in, because people try to use common sense to understand it. And I'm going to end by saying, and I'll expand on it perhaps later, that the fallacy of using common sense leads to a mindset that says, uh, if I have information and I want to protect it, let me build some sort of a perimeter defense around it, a wall of some sorts. Now that may be a wall of software, and I'll keep the bad guys away, and therefore I'll protect the information. So one of the things that we have learned from the National Security Agency, from academia here in MIT, is that is 100% destined to fail, because these walls are made of software, they have bugs, and you basically penetrate every single one of those so how do you protect that information when you know that every system that you build is fallible? The irony of it is that as consumers, we use such systems, and I'll explain later how. And so people are swapping jokes on WhatsApp and Signal. These systems are designed to protect information with the highest level of security, even if the system is breached at the WhatsApp servers or the Signal servers, et cetera, using a technique called end-to-end -end encryption. And so I conclude by saying that, you know, when you think of protecting information, it is these principles of assuming a breach is inevitable and applying modern principles of cybersecurity that can lead to good outcomes. And we ought to look at the consumer, you know, space to see that it can be done and it can be done easily. Okay. More on that later. All right. Uh, have we been sponsored by WhatsApp? That's uh, uh, actually not, uh, <laughs> yeah. not at all. All right. Well, uh, I don't I, know if the U.S. government has thought of using WhatsApp to communicate our nuclear codes, but no, perhaps, perhaps not at all. Uh, and I'm not a big fan of Facebook either oh. because of their data collection. But it, nonetheless, from an academic perspective and from a cybersecurity perspective, essentially state uses techniques that encrypt the information from the sender stored encrypted on the servers, and only decrypted by the ended, intended recipient. Mm. So it solves many of the challenges that you articulated. Who does have access to the data? If it's a communication between you and the recipient, only you two have it. WhatsApp cannot decrypt it, therefore neither can the attacker. And so it gives you a sense for if it's that category of data, then that's the best use for it. Of course it doesn't work, when you are just generally collecting data for analytics perspective, that needs to be broadly disseminated. Right. And hence the distinction that I made between the two categories of data. Right. We, we use end-to-end -end encryption a lot, but we also use this principle that sometimes you have to have networks that are just entirely physically separate from mm -hmm. other networks so you can't get into them. 
That's exactly one of the one of the ironies. I mean, I hate to talk about nukes so much, but one of the ironies <laughs> with our with our, our our incredibly old nuclear weapons is that you 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 program them with these like floppy disks that are literally this big. Wow. Which is really kind of ridiculous in today's world. But the odd advantage of it is it's like very difficult to hack. Right. <laughs> who's gonna get in and swap out the floppy disk in some, you know, silo in North Dakota? Yeah. Uh, it's a, a fun one uh, because it's exactly the kind of non-intuitive approach to cybersecurity. Seth made a great example. If it's a floppy disk, somebody's gotta go take it out, put it right. in. There was an interesting case where RSA had tokens that were used as a basis to access computers. And those things were what are called air-gapped. So they had a, a seed that was used to build the encryption, the computer was kept aside, and you, it was physically separate from the network. Mm. And yet a breach of it occurred because every 15 minutes or so, they needed to get access to that information to get more seeds for new tokens, and the adversary got through to them. So again, it's an example of you know, how even a system that you thought was physically separate mm. from a security perspective can be breached, and in that, hence the perspective that assume everything can be. Right, so. assume, it's a depressing, a depressing perspective. So I, I wanna talk about the data itself. So the premise, I think, of, of our conversation, I'm a professor of data science, and I spend a lot of time thinking about data, is that data is good. It's good to have more information rather than less information. So setting aside you know, classification and how we're sharing it, how do you all think about what data you collect in the first place? What is it that you actually are interested in? What is it that you're keeping track of? And if you have them, I would love to hear examples of data that you've collected that, wow, this has been you know, unexpectedly useful. But also the flip side, uh, I think you mentioned unintended consequences. You know, what's a case where we collected information where we thought maybe, oh, this is innocuous, this isn't too damaging. Uh, and are there examples of just by virtue of having that information uh, turned out to have some negative consequences. Corey, can I put you on the spot yeah. first? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. Um, I'm going to go back in time because let's just say we, if you're using data well, you're kind of screwing it up all the time. Okay. Um, because that's part of the innovation experimentation. Uh, and so I'll go back when this was like 2015. We were trying to figure out how to do a um, significantly better job of detecting attacks in environments against cyber adversaries. And, you know, the history of that is we typically collected a bunch of, I would say, log data on computers about a computer activity. Um, and, and that was actually just losing ground studily because you just didn't have a rich enough perspective. So we decided to build a system that was really around user behavior that says, listen, when someone is compromised, their behavior should be different than it actually was in the past, and we should be able to use statistics to actually detect that behavior. Hmm. Uh, and it was very innovative at the time. Now, as part of that, we actually pulled in cell phone geolocation data, which ended up being a massive accelerant to actually figuring out, like, is the, seems, seems logical today, is the interest point from what people are logging in consistent with basically where their cell phones say they actually are in the world? And it turned out that our efficacy rates went up like 30, 40% um, on the ability to be able to filter high quality things. Clear benefit from a cybersecurity context. We did not think about the use case for abuse. Mm. And so it turns out that um, some, one of in our European <coughs> customers, um, one of our not high integrity um, IT customers used that data to surveil the employees at their company. 
um, to figure out where they were going, what they were doing. Um, and that's a real abuse of it that we just had not contemplated at all. We were so focused on the use case of stopping attacks. We never thought like, how could this be abused? Uh, and so it turns out they use that information to do not so great things. They basically use it to shame someone um, for you know, what they were doing in their personal life. And the unions, of course, got really upset because that's a massive invasion of privacy, especially in the European context. Um, and it was a big lesson learned from us that like, we have to not just think about the benefits of data. That was a clear benefit. No one disputed the benefit, but we have to be rigorous all the time about thinking about like, how data can be abused. Right. Uh, and so that's an example of like, massive benefit, customers are very happy from that, also a massive abuse. Right. And we had to go in after time and actually make sure that you could not get, we could get a lot, as it turns out, we could get a lot of the same value by actually just having geographic territory. We didn't need to know what street someone was on or what block someone was on. That was unnecessary to solve the problem. So more data was not actually more valuable. It introduced more risk. Uh, and so what we did was we actually took, I would say, less data, um, solved the problem, um, but we actually decreased the risk by actually having less um, fidelity of data. Well, I'm trying to think about your, what you, you've just shared, and thank you for that, in, in the context of sports. You know, I personally would love to know information. You know, what are the sleeping and eating and, and pre-game habits of some of my favorite star athletes, and what could we learn from what they're doing before and after to recovery? And like, wouldn't that be so interesting to have all that data? And then also, we could use that data to stalk them and be really creepy, right? So. Yeah, and, and by the way, but you can get the same benefit from using data aggregations. Like, you yeah. know, statistics and models provide a lot of value about how do you actually make it where it's anonymized across specific right. populations. Right, right. And, and actually, someone maybe has the key to de-anonymize it, but how do you make sure we trust that exactly. person or put it on a floppy disk, uh, as, as the US government is doing? What, what, what are some examples? Uh, they can be about nukes, but they can be about something else. Uh, so I should, I'd like to talk about mental health, All right. um, which is highly relevant um, to, uh, uh, to sports and really everybody. Uh, I am not the mental health expert on the panel. That is Corbin. I know, but, you're stealing uh, my thunder. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But I passed a law to establish 988 as a new mental health hotline for mm -hmm. the whole country. So that, you know, just like you wake up in the middle of the night and you don't have to, your house is on fire, you don't have to find a phone book to remember the number from the fire department, you just dial 911. Well, now anybody in America, no matter what cell phone or landline you have, you or a loved one has a mental health crisis, you can just know to dial 988. Mm -hmm. And as a result of this number, which was just actually implemented in July, <clears throat> calls are up 50%. So 50% more Americans are, are getting help. By the way, texts, which are a good proxy for younger Americans, texts are up 1,445% wow. in the last eight months. So a lot more young Americans are getting help in this moment of crisis when they need it. Yeah. But we had a big debate in putting together this law to establish this service about what to do when someone is literally about to kill himself and whether or not you should send police to the house. If you had good geolocation data mm -hmm. and you really think as the operator, the, the counselor listening to this call, this needs an immediate intervention, then you could use that geolocation data to potentially save a life. Right. But what we learned in studying this is that actually knowing that that might happen, knowing that by calling this number, you might have a police officer sent to your house would discourage so many calls that it would actually probably cost more lives to have that intervention be a regular thing than it would save. So although technically it's, you know, you, 
it's possible for a counselor to call the police. The general practice and the vast, vast majority of calls that are received, you only talk to a counselor. They don't send anyone to your home. And knowing that is really important for getting more people to use right. the service. Right. Well, I mean, and that's an example I think of, I guess it's, it's reassuring that folks are thinking this through or at least imagining that, that, uh, that that's something that would disincentivize people from using that. I mean, an example that I know in my own work in natural language processing is something similar where we say, well, oh, okay, we could use uh, NLP to evaluate mental health uh, crises on social media. Someone's posting something that indicates it might be alarming, uh, and maybe we could use that to, to detect and intervene. And it's the same sort of thing where it's like, well, gosh, who has that information, and could you use that to surveil, and then would that cause people to not share how they're doing and get less help uh, at the same time? How do, you, how do you communicate this? Just a quick follow-up question for you. How do you communicate to the, the folks we say, hey, call 988, uh, we promise we won't send a police officer to you. Like, how do you, how do you build that trust? So it, uh, we thought it would be relatively simple because this is obviously such a good thing. I mean, yeah. the, the most common question I got when we announced this was, this is so obvious, why didn't you do it 20 years ago, yeah. right? And yet, given the world we live in, there was a concerted social media campaign um, started by some um, sort of crazies on the far right to undermine the service. Mm. And they started spreading the rumor that if you call this number, you will have someone sent to your house. And unfortunately, this was picked up by um, you know, certain groups or demographics, and, uh, and it created a lot of fear. And this is something that just happened this past summer. So we had to actually really fight back against that. Mm. You know, we're talking about the service um, so that people know about it. There's a lot of stuff on social media, and there are just literally signs you know, at places like on bridges and stuff that remind people that this is, this is available. But we didn't expect, we actually are now working on a law to criminalize impersonating callers, which is something that had to be done for 911. Right. We were hopeful it wouldn't have to be done for 988, but actually, sadly, it turns out that, we, that it does. Okay. Well, and hopefully something like 911, it's, if after it's around for long enough and enough people use it, you sort of learn through experience that you can trust it, right? Absolutely. That's right. Yeah. All right. 988, everyone. 988. Corbin. Well, I mean, mental health is such a sensitive topic, yeah. and it's such a current topic. Um, I was reading about, I'm very into chat GPT right now, mm. um, using it as my co-pilot all the time. And there was a, a study that was, that was done. There was a group of thousands of patients where they had chat GPT interacting with people in a sort of therapeutic way. So, you know, providing beautifully eloquent, very empathetic mm. responses to, to patients that were much better than the human um, that could, could do it. But when that patient found out that it was a machine mm. on the other end, it completely eliminated any potential hmm. benefit of having that beautiful, eloquent, and empathetic response. And so I think we have to be really thoughtful, particularly in mental health, around how we're integrating the data, the natural language processing, all the different components, because we're dealing with humans, oftentimes in their most vulnerable mm -hmm. and critical moments, and how do we engage them in that way? Um, so in our space, you know, we, we collect a lot of data. We're trying to take care of people with addiction and mental health issues. We, we collect their medical history a lot of times. We integrate that with some of their social behaviors to try to understand what's the best way to engage with them. Because what we know from our analytics and from analytics in the space is that that first interaction and making sure that you get that right mix, so right mix of medication, right mix of therapeutic benefit, right mix of you know, the gender of the therapist, getting it right the first time 
highly predicts whether or not somebody will be successful in recovery because it's really hard to take that first step. And so the types of data that we try to do is to predict that ahead of time. So we, we augment the data with our own sort of clinical interventions to understand what pieces have been successful for what both behaviors and demographic characteristics so that we can better predict, oh, well, this person is gonna benefit from you know, this medication, they're likely to have this mix of mental health issues in addition to their substance, they're gonna benefit from you know, group therapy plus you know, someone who looks like them as a therapist. Mm -hmm. So um, those types of things in this space I think are, are really important. Let me just give you a quick example of why this, is, this matters so much. So I said calls are up 50%, texts are up 1,445%, right? Therapists in America are not up 50%. Yeah. We do not have enough therapists yeah. to help all these people who, whose life is, life is saved by that one phone call but yeah. then need follow-on care. So one of the things we're looking at is how to integrate AI into this space. But to Corbin's point, you gotta do it really carefully. There's huge opportunity, but you gotta be careful. But not everyone needs a therapist. That's people also could, true, people yeah. People could get yep. very similar therapeutic benefit from somebody who shows great empathy, mm -hmm. great caring, and who mm -hmm. looks like them, a peer mm -hmm. from, the, from the same experience as them. And so we over-index that's another regulation we over-index on people who have certain license criteria because it's safe and it's because that's, you know, we're in a highly regulated environment, but the, you can get the same or better right. clinical and financial outcomes by not having to rely on those. Right. Yeah. So someone from, from the community who is willing to work as, a, as a, a listener and a conversationalist, they don't necessarily have to have gone through, you know, psychiatric training, right? The, the, people, on, the people who are answering the 988 phone calls, right. they are, the vast majority of those are not. Right. Licensed clinical social licensed, workers. Yeah. Right. They are, but they are empathetic, and they're having tremendous benefit from a therapeutic perspective to the to the folks who are in crisis on the other end. I have a, a follow-up question for you, if you don't mind, on on getting information from patients, because this, I, you know, the kind of two big ways that we get data about humans is we observe them, right? They're running across the field, or we ask them questions, and they tell us how they're doing or what was going through their mind when they did these things. How much, you know, you described the patient interaction experience and how important it is to get that right. How much are you able to, you know, take data on, on observing people's behavior, right? So do you look for physical signs of addiction? Like, are, are there other pieces like that? And how do you think about the ethics around, around that kind of observational data, which could be laced with biases among other problems? Yeah, so I mean, absolutely, people, people share information with their doctors who hasn't lied to their doctor. Um, when we share information about our eating, we share that we, we consume 25% less calories than we actually do. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but our doctors rely on that, particularly in mental health. There's a lot of psychometrically validated screens that are completely based on you know, a person answering those questions and sharing what symptoms that they have. There are certainly in, in mental health, um, they're, they're, um, physical components like eyes, sweating, shaking, there are certain yeah. components that you can look from a physical manifestation of, of mental health and addiction. Um, there's certainly, um, you know, screen, you know, you can test someone to see if they're, you know, on, on substances or not. So there are physical ways that you can test them, mm -hmm. but there, there are moments in time. And so you really need to evaluate what a person is sharing with you right. as well.
Right. Well, I can just add, so some of my own uh, research is in the people analytics space. And so uh, a lot of companies, and I, I would imagine uh, uh, companies represented here, are very interested in understanding diversity on a number of identity dimensions within their companies. And so they might want to know uh, the various racial backgrounds, gender identities, and so on of their employees. And uh, lo and behold, in the United States, you are uh, not required to tell your employer what your race is. And I cannot tell you the number of times that I have worked with very big, famous companies that we've all heard of, where I say, well, how did you even get this race data? And they said, oh, we walked around and we wrote down what race we thought people were. And you're like, oh, that seems bad. Like, I'm not a lawyer, but like, <laughs> like that's, that can't be right, <laughs> you know? And, and I'm just thinking about the healthcare experience where, you know, you go in, you're, you're vulnerable, you may be nervous around interacting with the healthcare system in the first place, especially if it's addiction, uh, mental health, things like that where there might be other stigmas. And you go in and you think, gosh, what are the doctors even reading in me as they evaluate me? Or what, what are people assuming? Uh, about me and so on. And I imagine that we do this with, you know, we probably want to understand the experiences of all kinds of uh, athlete profiles and we, we simply don't have that information nor should we expect them to divulge it, right? If you say, what, what about mental health in, um, among athletes, right? That could really damage your career if you had to, if you felt you had to share that. Well, as, as, we, t as we talked about ahead of time in healthcare, the vast majority of research in this country on healthcare um, with medications and, and medical protocols has been with white men mm. as, the, as the case study and as the, the dominant place where we test. Well, there are different reactions, different dosages, different things you have to evaluate um, with different genders, different races, and so we have to get better about that intersectionality, and that goes to, to athlete data, mm -hmm. right? So athletes may perform and respond differently to different types of, of training or sleep or other regimens, and so healthcare is really personalized right. and I think that's that's what that's what the power of data has to do is to is to collect enough of that data data so that you can actually predict and help refine mm -hmm. health wellness um, for athletes and others well and that brings back to a point Corey that you made earlier about you know we hope we can anonymize this data and kind of still learn from it without harming folks but if you're someone who's a member of a marginalized community you might be the only person who has these particular identifying characteristics you say oh all all, all, empl all athletes who have this religious background, you know, are experiencing the, these following uh, uh, things. You're like, oh, you mean the one person on the team, right? Is that the one? Uh, so it's exactly, which is why I, I think what makes it really hard is that I think most people who are using data are trying to solve a problem, and or they're trying to find opportunities, and they have they're well intended. Right. Um, but you do have to think about like, what are all these edge cases, and that slows you down yeah. from the mission. And if it slows you down too much, as you know, we were indicating, you could actually end up having less benefit than the risk. Because I think the thing that people forget about with risk all the time is the goal is never zero risk. Mm -hmm. Anytime we try to pursue a zero risk strategy, it's also a zero benefit strategy. Um, That's and, good. Write that down. That's good. <laughs> yeah. and, so, and so the hard thing is actually having it where the benefits outweigh the risk. And the thing that we have to be comfortable with, and I know, Congressman, you deal with this every day, is that even if the benefits are three to four X um, the risk, the stories from the time that the risk prevails actually will just dominate and wash out the benefits. And that's a hard thing for humans to sort of like process. Mm -hmm. 
That happens a lot in politics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Are you trying to tell me that one bad thing can derail another one? It's hard one? to yeah. imagine. Yeah. yeah. One bad thing derailing a political. It's a wild, wild world of politics. Sanjeev, what about uh, in your experience? Do you have uh, some cases for us in your world of you know data that maybe we we thought would be really, really great and had some unintended negative consequences, or the flip? Doesn't have to be. So uh, we come from again. I started by explaining two perspectives on data. One is the assurance of utmost privacy and security for a communication, which includes sharing. So imagine the case of defense companies that are sharing you know, designs amongst a group of them. So collaboration and sharing is very much part of it. So the perspective that we come from is one where we say, look, uh, it's about protection of the information and the application of modern principles of zero trust, which ought to extend to us as well. Hence, systems like ours that are end-to-end -end encrypted, we do email and both file collaboration like Dropbox, um, are designed where we absolutely collect no information whatsoever. So we don't want to know anything. Uh, we can't decrypt your information because you should deem us as untrustworthy. What if I decide to, for whatever reason, larger good or this, that, or the other, say, well, isn't it because of X, Y, Z, and I just open up? If I can, so can the attacker. So now you have a class of companies that are focused on protection of information. And again, in sports, you should think of contracts or important health information, et cetera, that are the business of who sent it and who it was shared with. And therefore, we will collect no information. Therefore, there is no potential for us to sell it, analyze it. There is none. I just know that this person sent a message. We're providing a secure channel. But for the companies that use it and for the individuals that use the service, which is free for them. So take an example of defense companies. 20 of them are working on a contract for you know, whatever they're working on and they are collaborating. The files are encrypted end to end. They are kept on servers. They're all collaborating on it. So then comes the question of, well, what happens? You said that we can't look at it. We can't, if you come and say to us, go decrypt it, I can't do it. I'm not collecting information on what's happening. But let's say for whatever reason, Congressman says, well, we need to go and take a look at this. And they go and reach out to the defense companies and say, I want access to the information. You made a very interesting point that said, I don't want one person to go and you know, unlock it. So safeguards are put in where much like the nuclear launch codes, cryptographically, you distribute trust even amongst the administrators. So let's say you say I want access to the information. Some N out of M approve, and then it's decryptable. But that is done not through logic, but it's done cryptographically. And it's a little nerdy point that I want to make. If it's logic that says, Congressman, do you approve? Corbin, do you approve? And you say, yes, yes. And some computer just says, Yes, yes, and yes. If I attack that computer, I can always say, yeah, I just turned the switch from no to yes. Mm. But if it's done cryptographically, even if that computer is attacked, you can't fake a yes. This is how sort of also cryptocurrencies, et cetera, work. So again, we come at it from the perspective of we could design things to make things, you know, oh, let's just look at it. We say, no, not at all. We won't look at any information and we provide it, and the owners of the information have the ability to go and, and do the, that sort of stuff. 
So we're not part of these decisions on what's an ethical bound, what's uh, right for you to decrypt. That is a very different problem for your sports analytics world, where you are collecting a lot of information. And there I submit that you know, some of the regulatory frameworks, such as those that exist in defense and in healthcare and in financial services, provide probably to the sports industry a good framework to rely on and saying what are best practices for us to rely on when that information is specifically designed to be shared mm -hmm. and has consequences and potential to be misused. Well, I'm glad you, well, let me, let me pause. Thank you for, for, for this. And let me just pause. If you haven't, please feel free to ask questions of the panelists. Um, you can post them on Twitter with the hashtag, what sports can learn, uh, and we'll, we'll pass them along to our panelists. But I wanted to, you brought up a great point about a distinction between data ownership and data access. And we've kind of been treading in this conversation this entire time. And I wonder what I, you know, what your individual views are, maybe pulling from your, the areas where you work or, or just your own personal views on what's the, what's the right balance here in terms of data ownership, right? I feel like my, my like American roots say like, we should all own our own data and that's the full stop answer to everything, right? But you've given us some examples where, where owning your own data could really minimize the access to care that you get because you're not willing to share with practitioners who could help. How do you all think about the, the who ought to own data about ourselves, right? Uh, so first, I would say it's just, it, yeah. it, is a, it is a framing challenge. Yeah. Because, you know, while I like to think that the, you know, the American model is that we all should own it. The American behavior is not that. Mm. Um, 10 out of 10 times, we choose to give away our data if we get something valuable for free in return. <laughs> I mean, so let's just be clear about that. It's, that yeah, is absolutely. the norm of where we actually live today. Yeah. Um, and people are like, I hate Facebook, but you know, I am on some other service. All of us actually give away data every single day, every single moment of, you know, like the, and so that is our norm. Yeah. Um, and so the question really is, is now you're in the gray of sort of like, do I understand the value I get and do I feel like I'm exploited? And I use the term feel sort of like intentionally because we actually make that trade off. Now, if you give people and you frame it as a, a, do you want to just give your data? Which I think is a lot of the healthcare context of like, do you want to just give your data? We're not clear about what the benefit to you is, but you're actually giving it. And by the way, here's all the risk. You know, we give, of course, everyone says no. But if we and frame, you usually have to fax it for something. You have to fax it. Yeah, it's <laughs> wild. It. Now, if I do something completely different, if I say, do you want some benefit, no matter how small it is, and I give you this long EULA to actually click through, no one actually reads the stupid thing. They just click through. Yeah. And so I, I think that one of the things that we have to realize is the framing matters. And we have not agreed how to frame how we surface up the basically transparency about what data shared, what purpose it's gonna actually be used for, what the targeted benefit and what the protections are. Uh, and that's a tough one because people also wanna actually have that entire decision cycle done in 30 seconds or less. Mm. Um, no one wants to spend over 30 seconds figuring out that decision cycle. Right. I just say all that to say the framing matters hugely and how you frame it will determine how people respond. Right. Well, and that brings up questions, you know, in research around informed consent, which is, I'm going to tell you the risks of this study, but how do I make sure I do it in a way that you're actually going to pay attention to and it's actually informed? Mm -hmm. uh, it reminds me, I met someone recently who works, uh, he, builds, uh, he, he builds the algorithm to make targeted ads on Instagram, 
and I was just like, how do you sleep at night? Like, what's going on with you? Not to be, you know, judgmental, but he was like, well, he was like, my job is to connect you with the brands you love. And I was like, wow, that's a framing is what that is. I'm like, oh, would you like to be connected to the brands you love? Sure, like, here's my social security number, how about it? Well, All right. if, if, people, yeah. if, people, well, if people felt badly about that, yeah. they would fight back and say, no, don't share my, but the right. reality is, is that people, we've been talking about data ownership and who owns, you know, who owns your data for, for years. Yeah. And the reason it doesn't change is there's no, there's no marketplace, right? There's no marketplace or you know, way to, to you know, exchange or put your own value on your data. It's, it's gonna be nominal for most, most people. The friction in their day-to-day -day lives isn't really worth it. Mm -hmm. And most people are getting benefit in some way. So maybe, you know, maybe one out of the 10 Instagram ads is like, oh, you just put a weight loss thing up for me? What are you talking about? How, why did you think that, right? Maybe it's offensive in some way, but for the most part, it improves the experience and that's why people, right. they get some benefit out of it. I think in healthcare, it hasn't, you know, we don't communicate it well enough right. um, to, to Corey's point. And I think making sure that we're communicating the greater good, right? How you're helping society, which some people care about, others don't, um, but how it, it actually can help your own, your own health to be able to, to share your own data in that way. Um, but when it comes to athletes, and we talk about data ownership and should they, you know, if I'm an athlete and I'm thinking about my career mm -hmm. and sharing that data, we don't know the unintended consequences. So there's a lot of fear around, well, what happens if my coach wants to see every single thing that I'm doing, every right. single thing that I'm putting in my body, how much are they going to control me? Right. If we put some monetary value on that, like, okay, you're going to get paid $10 million as an athlete, but if you share our data with us, we'll give you, this, we'll give you a $15 million contract. Pretty sure they'd share their data. Right. Right. Just, just as a follow on that, you know, a perfect case is that it, um, in the auto insurance space is that, like, you know, you have these tracking devices and the cameras that you can actually use, right? Like, if I just said, listen, we just want to put a camera in your car, you're like, no. <laughs> uh, now, if I say I cut your auto insurance rates in half by yeah. doing that, it turns out lots of people uptake that. Now, some people don't. Yeah. Um, but you're giving people a decision value trade-off, which we just don't make explicit enough. But just to build on that, you're also putting people in a position where maybe folks who have fewer financial resources give away more of their data because they benefit from that. And so you lose privacy by virtue of exactly. Yep. What do you have for us in terms of data ownership? <laughs> how, how is the U.S. government uh, deciding how we're going to? Every American gets a floppy disk, is what I'm. I mean, look, I think I think Corbin's right. Like we, yeah. we the government owns really all of our data. data. Yeah, yeah. But not really, actually. We, I mean, the big tech companies kind of own all. Yeah. Of that. Right? Um, I mean, the government has a lot of data, but it's sort of boring stuff. Like, we have all this radar tracking data, like, like reams and reams of it, and it only matters when we can then go back in time and figure out, oh, wait, there were these other balloons that were coming over two years ago. Mm. That's what we actually did. Yeah. We looked at what the one balloon looked like, and then we were able to see that signature like two years ago, we, we didn't even notice. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's sort of interesting, because everyone cares about balloons right now, but like, <laughs> in general, these are like very, this is like very boring data for everybody, whereas, you know, the tech companies have all the stuff that really matters to us. Yeah. I think one of the problems is that it only really matters when you have big data, right? And so if I go to Google and say, no more, you're gonna pay for my data, yeah. you're gonna have to charge, you know, I'm gonna, price is 10 bucks to have Seth's data. You'll be like, well, we don't care. We yeah. have funds of other data, we don't need your data. So, you know, yeah. so I, I don't think the government has a solution. Oh, you know, what's funny to me is that um, I, I'll have to find it, but there was a survey done about like attitudes towards data. In America, we actually trust the government less with our data 
And in Europe, they trust companies less with their data. Mm. Um, and you saw some interesting dynamics. Now, that's shifted over time with how US companies and Facebook and others have actually used the data. But you actually saw a much higher degree of trust um, before who actually mm. do you trust with your data. Well, I think the other thing for us in a da database is, is like we get a lot of data that, that we probably shouldn't use to make decisions. Mm -hmm. right? So one of the ways that people communicate with my office is they call on the phone. And so some of my colleagues will say, well, you know, I don't know how to vote on this bill, but 55% of the people who are calling my office are saying to vote no. Right. And I'm like, well, that just means that the no people are more organized. Yeah. Like, that doesn't really represent your constituents, right? right? So um, it, we're in the, or you have this war in Ukraine going on right now. In the middle of the Vietnam War, um, the two, like the, the top issue was the same. The top issue that people were calling in the office about was the same during the Vietnam War as it is right now during the war in Ukraine. Any ideas what it is? Animal rights. Whoa. Because they're super organized. And so if I just listened to the phone calls, all, I wouldn't do mental health, I wouldn't do nuclear security, I would just do animal rights. Yeah. What number can my dog call for support when I don't feed them on time? Your dog would yeah. be thrilled to know that this is the case. Yeah. Wow. Well done. All right. All right. So I want to make sure we get, uh, I'm going to throw out a couple of really great audience questions. And it's, uh, I'll go to you first, Sanju. Uh, uh, dealer, listener's choice as to which ones you want to answer. So, so one really great question that's come up is, it seems like a lot of what we're doing here is reactive. We say, whoa, that didn't work out the way that we thought it would. Or, oh, actually, we should have looked back at that data. Are there examples that you'd be up for sharing or, or that could give us a little bit of hope about proactive policies, whether around privacy, uh, guardrails, and so on? Uh, and another one that I selfishly would love to know what you all think about is um, someone is saying, look, a lot of sports leagues and teams are using TikTok to engage with um, everybody. Uh, what do we think about the pros and cons around uh, the U.S. representative is shaking his head? All right, let the, uh, around, around TikTok in particular, I think, is, is a, an area of data privacy and, and some other issues that might be of interest to our audience. But Sanjeev, what do, you, what do you got for so us? So I'm going to go and paraphrase a friend. So Ben okay. Gerstel is a friend who was a general counsel for the National Security Agency. He wrote an op-ed on this TikTok business. And his perspective is a very thoughtful you know, person was that, yes, TikTok is collecting data. But so is Google. And probably TikTok is an amateur compared to mm. the amount of data that's being collected by Google. But I think that the issue that Glenn raised, which is something that I'm more sympathetic to, is the potential for TikTok to influence public opinion, et cetera, through the use of the platform as being a far more potentially troublesome area for us to focus on, as opposed to the, the gross collection of it. Now, I myself personally come from a perspective where less collection is better. I am uncomfortable with Google collecting the amount that they do. Freaked out a little bit by Eric Schmidt's um, you know, statement, which was something along the lines that he said, well, this is before all the privacy issues came up, that, well, you know, with your permission, we collect, uh, you tell us who your friends are. And with, people laughed and said, well, the open mission you, you know, share with us what you're you know, communicating about. And he went on a litany of with the open mission. And so you know, we make it to help you know, build services that ultimately help you. And look, here we are right now at a point where I don't even need you to type anything. I pretty much know exactly what you're thinking. 
And that is transcending certain bounds. And of course, I think Eric has been gagged from saying any of that now. But it is that level of care and diligence that you need to exert because the more you collect on platforms, the potential always exists to kind of just warp the opinion just a little bit and right. so forth. And I think Facebook's example during the past election cycle or the 2016 was another you know, beautiful one to illustrate that. Yeah, but just to be clear, this is not a potential for TikTok. They do it every single day. Yeah, right. yeah there's a difference. And, I mean, TikTok users, you know, teenagers who use TikTok have very different views in the United States about certain things like pursuing uh, STEM education than mm -hmm. they do in China because of TikTok and the way they're influencing behavior today. Spot on. I, the, I don't, you know, I don't really want that for my kids. Personally. Well, exactly. I mean, all, all social media. I mean, you think about when we first got Friendster or, or Friendster. Facebook. Here yeah, we go. Fine. Yeah. I mean, you you knew I was going to say Friendster. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I came to hear about Friendster. We, but, we had, yeah. I mean, it's it felt so so safe. Like, what what would be the unintended consequence <laughs> of like talking to and making friends on the internet? Like, but obviously. Yeah. They figured out how to make money doing something that doesn't feel good anymore, and now sort of influencing, influencing behavior, affecting mental health, influencing elections is all something that can be done through these through these platforms. And so we, you know, that's where regulations are needed. It's not the proactive mm -hmm. way. I think that's sort of the point of this panel is to think, well, sports may be in the earlier right. stages of creating sort of a regulatory environment or framework um, for protecting, and so how to learn from where we've fallen short. Yeah, but I, I think the trick here, because I completely agree with that, it exists. But the business model is I get um, community validation, whatever it is, um, from social media. And I think people were comfortable with the notion and the idea that in return for being part of this community, in return for this access, is people advertise to me. I think that's a, that, that's a, that's a fine one people are comfortable with. I think what's harder is that that is advertising, you know, quickly bleeds into influencing how I think and my behavior, which people are much less com comfortable with. But there is, to the congressman's point, a significant delta in how do you actually think about what's the purpose of how we're influencing sort of like behavior in public opinion. Mm. Uh, and so I, I do think that like social media all has this um, thing that we should watch carefully and be concerned about but they're not all the same, um, and they don't have all the same goals. Well, and I think one thing that we haven't really talked about is you know, the data itself, but also, gosh, the algorithms that are doing things with it, right? I think about data, data ownership, data privacy, guardrails against that, but once you have that data, how are you steering people's, people's views? So I wanna close with uh, going back to our, our theme of what can sports learn from these other industries? I wonder if you, uh, we have a great audience question, what are the ethical considerations that sports organizations should take into account when collecting data about athletes and fans? So from your perspective, what's something that you would say, hey, we've been here for a while, here's what you should be thinking about when you collect data from athletes and fans? You all can go in any order that you like. <laughs> well, again, I, I would start by saying that I, I really want to pontificate on ethics, but I would make a draw a distinction between the athlete and the fans. Okay. And I would say that for the athlete, it's their livelihood and the utmost protection, both in terms of who has access to the data and guardrails associated with it, which means the highest level of protection for both the communication and guardrails for how that data is used with the athlete having the final say over it is to me, appears to be the most important thing because a lot is stake for the athlete. 
as far as the fans are concerned, it's much more a question of applying, I think, best practices from other industries in the forms of you know, regulatory frameworks that exist so that you can be you know, a little bit ginger in dealing with the data that you accumulate and not being overbearing in terms of sort of misusing it to the best of your knowledge. But as we started with Corey's comments over here, um, you know, no matter how good your intentions, there's always some potential and perhaps some level of you know, trying and correcting is probably fit for the fans. Mm. I think, I think for athlete data, again, given it's, it's folks' livelihood, um, not to leap too quickly. Um, and so any guardrails around ensuring that any predictive capabilities or anything that we're collecting <coughs> recognizes that these are humans that mm. have multiple paths to, to success mm. and to performance. And so taking, taking the learnings of, of big data, but also recognizing that there are infinite paths. Mm -hmm. um, setting up guardrails similar to probably healthcare. Um, I mean, it is PHI when you, when you think about what we would be collecting mm -hmm. um, and, and how we help athletes from a performance perspective. You know, I personally would have some concerns about using that data around um, you know, contract and mm -hmm. defining contract value or contract terms. Um, and so I think being cautious about that piece. Um, on the fan side, when we think about how we, we influence behavior, we, we were just talking about social, I mean, fans, People are passionate about sports, mm -hmm. um, and you know, knowing knowing that and having their data, uh, you know, you can sort of make or break a person's day um, with some of the data that you might have. Just knowing that they're so passionate about that, and so I think, just acknowledging and putting in guardrails around how we use that data, knowing that it could have impact on right. on a person's well-being. Right. Right. I'll just say this briefly. I think it's important to think about the the downsides, and I don't want to be a pessimist, but but we've really all benefited from big data and the amazing ways that uh, we always get connected with the brands that we love whenever we go on social media. Um, but we really haven't experienced, I think, some of the potential downsides. And um, I mean, how many of you use like Signal or WhatsApp or something like that to safely communicate with your, your friends and associates, whatever? I mean, we certainly do, right? And, and it's, it's, it's quite safe. Um, how many of you are familiar with um, uh, DNDL, what that stands for. Download now, de decrypt later. So in, this, mm. in the not too distant future, we'll have quantum uh, computers that can decrypt current encryption. And so what some adversaries of us of ours are doing right now is downloading all our data that's mm. encrypted that they cannot decrypt right now, just so that they have it stored for 10 years from now when they can decrypt it. So I just wanted to leave you with something that would make you feel better. But that's... <laughs> Okay. Between that and the nukes, it's very uplifting. Yeah, <laughs> appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so I, I will, even though I, I, I focus on risk, I do think there's lots of benefit. Um, you, there's so much stuff we can do from sort of like performance, teamwork. So I think the athlete thing, I still think we're at the early part of the curve about learning what we can do. So I would encourage us to be aggressive on pursuing the benefits. Here's the two caveats that I would actually give on it. You could be aggressive on pursuing the benefits. How you use it matters. And so with the athletes, be transparent and use it to actually enhance versus punish. Mm. Uh, I would just say punishment should have a very long fuse, um, but using it to actually improve teamwork, improve performance, those are all good things. Um, you know, I, 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 um, I went to Vanderbilt. They have some wonderful stuff that they're doing in research down there where the student athletes are actually 
volunteer to be part of a research study because they actually want to focus on performance and improvement. That's all good thing. On the fan experience, people want to be engaged. Enrich the engagement. Make it funner. Make it better. But again, the key that you always get into with data is two things. Being indifferent to the consequences or thinking there are no positive, negative consequences. And so it's just being aware. And part of risk is saying, what's the benefit? And then paying attention to what are the consequences, what are the risks. If you do that, you're in good shape. All right. And what was it you said? We're going to close with your wise words. If there's no risk, there's no benefit. No risk, no benefit. No risk, no benefit. There we go. And there's humans at the end of every uh, data collection project before and after. I think just remembering that it's not numbers floating in the ether. It's human lives. All right. So that brings us to time. Please join me in thanking our panelists. And uh, I believe they'll be floating around if, if you uh, think there might be uh, more to learn from non-sports uh, as well. So thank you. Thank you again uh, for being here.